The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Thank you very much. Good to see you guys all here tonight. When I was growing up in uh, Palo Alto and Menlo Park and Atherton, there were no meditation groups like this, that's for sure. So when I was a, um, uh, a junior at Stanford University in 1964, I uh, took a course in abnormal psychology. And uh, I had been raised um, a Unitarian in Palo Alto, and I didn't know anything about uh, altered states of consciousness. Um, but... I decided to do a paper on altered states of consciousness for my abnormal psych class. And so uh, I got a book, uh, The Teachings of the Mystics by W.T. Stace, uh, which talked about... I was amazed. Uh, here I was supposed to be educated. I'm 19. I was supposed to be educated. I never heard about this before, that Sufi teachers, Buddhist teachers... St. Teresa de Avila, St. John of the Cross, Meister Eckhart, Taoist teachers, all pointing to a stillness that's right here and yet beyond time. And I was so entranced by the book um, that I quit going to classes. <laughs> and I just kept pouring over the book, pouring over key phrases in the book that really really uh, touched my heart. Uh, and then it was time to go, it was spring break, it was time to go skiing, um, visiting my friends in Salt Lake City so we could ski in Alta, Utah. And on the train on the way, on the way to uh, Salt Lake City, I only had that little book with me. <laughs> and I kept reading it over and over again, not thinking about it, just sort of reading it and letting it soak in. kind of. And uh, then when I got to Utah, I had a spontaneous experience of letting go of all the stuff that, that drives us, that we're worried about, that we complain about, that we identify with. Just letting it go. And it wasn't even I who let it go. It was just letting go of I. Letting go of little Tim with all of his worries and concerns and complaints all of his rehearsing and regretting and comparing and rehearsing and regretting and remembering and all that stuff, just letting go of it. Shh. And of course, it was wonderful. It was so wonderful that uh, my friends and I hitchhiked to go skiing up to Alta every, every day from Salt Lake. And, I, and I, enjoy, I enjoyed being just where I was with my thumb out on the road watching the cars watching the colors of the sky, watching the trees. And of course I enjoyed skiing too, but I enjoyed it all. And it wasn't I who enjoyed it, it was just enjoyment. So then I was going back to Stanford, spring break's over, time to go back to school. Well, little Tim starts coming back in. Starts saying, oh God, you're behind, you didn't write that abnormal psych paper, you know, what are you going to do, you got to work on it, oh I got to back to all this stuff. And then, I would, and then I would pick up the book, the, not this book, this is, this is my book, but <laughs> the book by uh, W.T. Stace, 
and I would open it to these key passages and uh, Tim would just stop again and there'd just be this wonderful peace. But by the time I got back to Stanford, by the time I got back to Palo Alto, it was all just a memory. And, and the, the uh, regretting, rehearsing, reviewing uh, was coming back on and on and on. So I thought, well, hmm, <laughs> I don't really want to go to school anyway. Although I did, I did go back and graduate, by the way. But I don't want to go to school anyway. I want this. I want this. <laughs> and so I thought, hmm, meditation. Oh, well, not... My grandmother did Catholic meditation. That was too chatty. But I, I read the section on Zen in the book, and I thought, that's the real deal. There's not a lot of extra stuff. Little did I know how much extra stuff Zen has for people, those of you who've been to Zen centers. But then I didn't know. And so I thought, oh, Chinatown, San Francisco, that's where I should go because they're Chinese and Zen comes from China and Buddhism comes from China, right? So I went up to Chinatown. I looked in the phone book, in San Francisco phone book, under Z, <laughs> and I found the Zen bar <laughs> and the Zen center. Well, then I had my first real spiritual dilemma. Which to go to? <laughs> Do I go to the Zen bar or the Zen center? And I thought, well, I know the bar scene pretty well. Too well, much too well. So I'll try the Zen center. So I went over to this little place in this Jewish synagogue and knocked on the door and the teacher came down. He introduced himself as Suzuki Sensei. And he taught me, he showed me a black cushion Oh, this is a brown cushion. He showed me a black cushion and said, sit. That's how I got started. That's how I got started. Um, so uh, I've been giving talks uh, about... Uh, this book is made up of my, my teaching and vignettes about my teaching that was authored by my former student, Wanda Isle, who is sitting right there. Um, and... Uh, I've been giving talks around. Uh, we've been here three weeks, and I've talked at all of the all the major Zen centers, um, and um, some bookstores, and I got a couple more to do in Sonoma and stuff. Um, and uh, um, uh, when I, I spoke last weekend at San Francisco Zen Center, and before speaking there, I went to the old Zen Center where where we used to uh, meditate when I was young. And uh, I wanted to show it to Wanda. Um, it was in a Jewish synagogue, and we went over the Jewish synagogue. It was a Jewish synagogue that the Japanese owned, uh, and uh, I wanted to show it to Wanda. So uh, there it was, still still intact, with still the the kind of pil the pillars on both sides, and now uh, it's it's a senior it's a senior citizen center. <laughs> So well, that's interesting, a senior citizen center. So I showed Wanda where we went upstairs to meditate, and I said, behind those, those people, those old people who are about my age, 72, <laughs> behind those old people, <laughs> those ancient people, <laughs> is the auditorium, Wanda. I'd like to go in there, but we didn't, we didn't go in. Maybe next time we'll go in. Uh, we're going to be here a few more days. And I said, in that auditorium is where they used to show movies on Saturday nights. And uh, they were a Japanese class B, grade B, but I actually think they were more like D-minus movies. Shoot 'em up movies, samurai movies, blood, guts, thunder. And my teacher, 
Suzuki. Uh, Roshi now, he's called Suzuki Roshi, but we just called him Sensei. He, and he's been, he's been gone for a long time. He wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Some of you probably know the book. Um, uh, he went to those movies every Saturday night because the Japanese didn't want to sit in meditation. It was not their thing. But they liked to go to the Saturday night movie. And they liked their, their minister. He was their minister to go with them. So, so uh, he went to all those movies. Then he had to give a talk to us, us uh, meditation students, on Sunday morning. So one Sunday morning, uh, he looked kind of tired and uh, before his talk, and I said to him, oh, by the way, I never went to any of those movies. I went over to North Beach. In those days, North Beach had the, the real movies, the real artistic Francois Truffaut movies, <laughs> right? <laughs> and uh, so I said to him on a Sunday morning, before his talk, I said, you go to those movies every Sunday night, Sensei? And he said, yes. I mean, every Saturday night, he said, yes. And I said, do you like any of them? And he said, I like them all. <laughs> now, this was a time when I had been having a lot of trouble with my meditation. And those of you who sit will, at some point, if you have a regular sitting practice, you'll have trouble with your meditation. And it was like images were churning through my mind on and on and on uh, and there didn't seem to be any release no matter what I did with my breathing with my body there was no release just one image after another on and on so when he said to me I like them all I saw the possibility of just watching the movie I saw the possibility and just being there with it with a kind open heart without having to jump on stage and manipulate it and get it to be a kind of movie we want it to be. We always want a different movie, don't we? We always want a different movie. Or we want to be f get the movie we had last time. I want the movie I had when I was in Utah back. But the more I want that movie that I had before back, the harder it is for me just to be present, just to be open, just to experience some quietness that's right here, always right here, so that was a very helpful time for me when I was thinking of quitting my Zen practice. And whether he did that consciously as a teaching or not doesn't even make any difference, does it? It just helped that we get these teachings all kinds of places from all kinds of people. Sometimes we don't even know, but they can help us stay on the path, stay with our meditation when it's difficult or when it's boring. <laughs> Or when it's delightful, not think, oh, I got it. I'm enlightened now. I don't have to do this anymore. Good luck. Good luck. <laughs> so now I want to read some uh, little parts of the book. Um, and this part of the book I'm going to read is from uh, uh, a time when I've been then doing qu quite a bit more meditation. So we're progressing now from... Uh, the story about the movie to maybe two years down the line. And I've been practicing a lot. I'm going to a lot of retreats, uh, sitting every morning, every night. Dropped out of Stanford, went to San Francisco just to really sit, because that's all I really cared about. And then back to Stanford, but still sitting all the time. So that's, that's the deal here. Um, so this, this section is called too much emptiness, a cup of tea, 
and finding a good seat. After an eight-week retreat at our monastery in Carmel Valley, which was named Tassajara Zen Mountain Monastery, I returned to San Francisco and immediately took a bus to the D. Young Museum. The D. Young Museum in those days in San Francisco had the best Asian art collection, I think, in the United States. And they had lots of Buddhist art. They had a floor of Thai Buddhist art, a floor of Chinese, a floor of Japanese. Really wonderful. I was still in the afterglow of the long retreat. In a meditative state, I walked through the museum slowly, soaking it all in as I made my way to the Asian collection. When I came to the first Buddhist statue, I stopped, or rather I was stopped by it, captivated by the peaceful expression that seemed to mirror what I was feeling inside. I felt an incredible stillness emanating from it. When I looked into the Buddha's eyes, they seemed to open into pure space. I felt as if I were teetering on the edge of something. Instinctively, I turned away. But just a few feet away, there was another statue. Its eyes were also like deep holes into nothingness. Again, I turned away. But the statues were everywhere. Infinitely vacant eyes were everywhere. I was overwhelmed and by now completely disoriented. With difficulty, I managed to get back to the bus. Still disoriented, I headed straight for the Zen Center. I stumbled up the stairs and plopped down on the couch in Suzuki's office. This was when there were just very few of us meditating, very few of us, so I could do that, I could do that. <clears throat> he greeted me in a friendly but mildly concerned manner and then asked what was going on. I told him about the statues. My, the spaciousness emanating from their eyes had pierced me to my core. If you continue this meditation practice and you do it every day and you do retreats, you will, you will, you will experience this too. You don't have to be a special being, just a regular being. You will experience this. There were no thoughts bubbling up in my mind. My body felt awkward, un unable to adjust to the sudden shift. Which statues? Suzuki asked, which seemed totally irrelevant. But I told him where I had been in the museum and described the statues I saw there. Let's have a cup of tea, he said. And then we had a cup of tea. <laughs> no more conversation that I remember. I went home, had my dinner, went to bed, got up and came to meditation in the morning, and I, and I felt fine. I felt fine. So, uh, we think that we want to let go of this little guy or little girl in here and just open into some wonderful spaciousness that's always here. But actually, we're so addicted to this guy, so addicted to his complaining and his, and his ruminating and his regretting and his rehearsing and his remembering. We're so addicted to him that Actually, when we, expect, when we begin to experience real stillness, we can kind of freak out. And, I, and my body was freaking out, not my, but my body was freaking out. Ah, mama, 
I want Tim back or Tim where'd Tim go? <laughs> do you know what I mean? If you don't know what I mean, do some long meditation retreats. Do some with real with real sincere heart. Sincere heart. Or just sit here for forty five minutes. <laughs> That's a long time. This seemed like a long time. I've been sitting for fifty years. <laughs> fifty one years. <laughs> but it's actually no time at all if you just let go of all this stuff. Watch the movie, but don't get on stage and try to mess with it. You think you've got a bad movie? We all have the same movie. We all have movies. Sometimes a good movie, sometimes a bad movie, sometimes a North Beach movie, sometimes a blood and guts movie. Just, just be here with it. It's not the true you. The true you can, can be with the movie. See the spaces between the images? Even if there's only this much space, that's, that's stillness, that's quietness, that's eternity in that much space. Wow! Wow! We're lucky, aren't we? <laughs> We're lucky. We're lucky. So why did, he, why did he say, which statues were they? And why did he say, let's have a cup of tea? He was grounding me in the physical grounding me in the physical, coming back to just this, to the texture of the book, to the uh, feeling of my, of my voice echoing as I, as, with this mic on, to just this. So then we can enjoy this peacefulness, but it's not something that's other than right here. It's just right here and taking care and drinking a glass of water and going to the bathroom, grounding in the physical, the sense spaciousness and when we do this we see all the fear in the movie and we actually live beyond the fear body live beyond the ceremony this the samurai who are who are impaling everyone (laughs) in in our images We, we see through it and see beyond it and let go of it but the movie comes back, that's okay. We don't identify with it anymore. Less and less we identify with it. Less and less as we do this practice. So the next uh, one I want to read is an example from my teacher, <coughs> who was actually <coughs> a teacher of many of us. Many of us. My teacher, Suzuki Roshi, my first teacher. Only we didn't know he was a Roshi then. He didn't even know that word. He said, well, that means old, doesn't it? <laughs> Don't call me that. <laughs> now we think Roshis are a big deal. He said, Don't call me that means old. <laughs> and I, I thought, well, he is old. <laughs> but actually, he was younger than I am. <laughs> Once, as I was driving Suzuki home from our Palo Alto sitting group, which he asked me to start in 1965 and later turned into the Los Altos Conando group, he asked if I would take him to an area in Hillsboro. He wanted to visit a woman who contacted him about Buddhism. He'd never met this woman, but he felt he should go visit her. Well, I wasn't too happy about it because I was supposed to be in class, but I did it anyway. Actually, I was very happy about it. I would much prefer to hang out with him because even though I didn't know the stillness myself, I hadn't imbibed it yet, I could pick it up from him from just being around him. I could pick it up. So, I'd, so I was glad to miss all my classes to do that. <laughs> <clears throat> 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 
his directions weren't good. We drove around for some time before we found the right house. It was on a large, spacious estate in a wealthy suburb. And every time I read this, the estate gets larger, the house gets larger, and the suburb gets more affluent. I haven't been to Hillsborough this trip. I don't know if it's still affluent. Is it? Is that where all the Google people live? (laughs) Suzuki said, you stay here. I'll go up. So I waited. But after only about five minutes, he came back. How'd it go? Very interesting. But not woman I thought. Wrong woman. (laughs) She thought I there to wash her windows. (laughs) He exclaimed with delight. But I didn't bring my squeegee. (laughs) He chortled with great amusement. It was easy to see how she'd made the mistake. Growing up in Palo Alto, the only Japanese I ever saw were manual laborers. Cleaning women, we had a cleaning woman in our house, gardeners, garbage, garbage men. You guys know where this was, don't you? 1945 was only 20, the end of World War II was only 20 years before this. And all the Japanese, and there were some very prominent Japanese here in the Bay Area, were sent to relocation camps. They lost everything. They lost everything. They were shipped off to those camps, and when they came back here, all they could do was menial work for a while. Very tragic, very tragic. So Suzuki was the first person I'd met, first Japanese person I'd met who was not a manual laborer. And he was dressed in black. (laughs) He was dressed in his window-washing clothes, which were his black priest clothes. Black Buddhist priest clothes. So it's not surprising she made the mistake. Here, this Japanese man coming in, in black rings her doorbell. <laughs> but the wonderful thing is that he wasn't. He didn't feel demeaned. He didn't have an image he was trying to maintain. Just the North Beach movie of me as the cool teacher. He thought he was playing a joke on her. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't feel demeaned. He didn't feel demeaned. <clears throat> The fear body would feel demeaned by this because it's always concerned about what others think. How many of you guys are really paying attention to me? (laughs) Really getting all the wonderful teaching I'm giving you. That's what we do. We, We look at the other. We want the other to behave in a certain way to affirm us, to make us feel like this, our movie is turning out well. But he had seen through the fear body, as you guys can do. You will do this. Maybe you have done this already. Just a sincere heart in your meditation practice, and you can do this. He could accommodate himself to his environment without getting caught by it. Because he was bigger than his environment. It was more as if he had pulled a practical joke on her. And for the next year, he kept teasing me. He kept saying, I found my squeegee. When are we going to go to that woman's house? <laughs> he said, her windows were really dirty. Really dirty. <laughs> so that's resiliency. We, we develop resilience through this practice. You may not think like you're, you're developing resilience. You may think, oh, God, you know, my butt hurts, my mind, the bad movie just repeats it all over again, but just by doing this sincerely, 
day after day, you're developing resilience. No doubt about it. You are. I promise you, you are. <clears throat> so the next one I want to read is uh, The Spell of Desire. So we have an aspiration to sit quietly, to just watch the movie without fighting it, fighting with it, and to experience some stillness when we don't identify with it anymore, when we see the images are just images. We have, we have that desire. Okay, thank you, thank you. Um, <clears throat> But it's difficult for us. It's difficult for us because we're besieged by desires that, that we don't want. We don't want. So here's something about those desires. Here's something about them. Remember adolescence? Remember falling in love for the first time or even the second time? Growing up in Palo Alto, when I was a senior in high school, I fell in love with a woman whom I can even give her first name now, her name after 51 years, Mickey. <laughs> Mary, but she went by the name. And I would circle the block and just to get a glimpse of her house every night <laughs> before it was time, to, before I really had to do my homework, I would circle this, her house on and on. Has anybody ever experienced that? Anybody ever experienced being in la-la land through your desire? Well, when you're sitting, this comes up too, doesn't it? Often in meditation, we're besieged by desire. One desire after another, they cycle through our mind endlessly. We're alone with them, with nothing to distract us and no way to fulfill them. We can only look at the endless parade of desires. If you sit in meditation with devotion, you will have to see and endure your desires. After a while, you can realize how irrelevant the object of your desire is. If the, it's desire itself that perpetuates our suffering. And we use desire to cover up all kinds of difficult emotions, don't we? All kinds of difficult hurts, all kinds of pains. Avoiding difficult emotions perpetuates them. The cycle repeats itself even with more intensity. But we can learn with meditation to accept our desires graciously. When we sit on the cushion, just as most of you are doing tonight, we can see one desire after another and feel how consuming each is. And if we remain on our cushion, we're graciously accepting them, even if it doesn't feel gracious. But when the bell rings and the desire suddenly vanishes, we recognize how little it actually means to us. Often it was just a temporary distraction from the pain or boredom that was coming up. Developing a gracious attitude toward our obsessive desires is what meditation practice is about. Seeing the nature of desire is the beginning of real liberation. As meditation practitioners, we can learn to carry our desires lightly, like butterflies lighting on our shoulders. I used to really enjoy the butterflies in Palo Alto, Atherton, Menlo Park. I haven't seen so many this trip. I've been here three weeks. I hope the monarchs are okay. I hope they're okay. 
we can just watch the delightful butterfly. When it flies off, another will come, then another. If we don't get clinging or judgmental, we can enjoy each butterfly, just like we enjoy each frame of the movie. If you learn nothing from meditation practice, I think you can learn to carry your desires lightly. I think you can do that. So I'm going to read two more now, and then it looks like I'll have a little bit of time to see if there are any, any questions or comments, okay? Oh, actually, I'm going to read three more. Maybe I'll just read two. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. So this is a Bob Dylan one, because Bob Dylan was my teacher, too. I mean, Jesus, the 60s, how could he not have been, right? <laughs> this is my love minus zero mantra. After my first year of meditation practice, the austerity of sitting still and doing nothing did not seem to be working for me anymore. I kept sitting with Suzuki every morning and every night. Uh, to make the early morning meditation, I sometimes stayed up all night. I was a college student. I already stayed up till 1 a.m. It was easier to stay up and drink coffee till 6, till 5.45 than to get up. So not as bizarre as it sounds. <laughs> you know, we meditate as we can and where we can, right? <laughs> we just do that. I sat in an all-night diner drinking coffee and staring out the window into the fog and darkness until it was time to go to the meditation center. This was about the time Bob Dylan came out with his album, Bringing It All Back Home. Four lines from two verses in the song, Love Minus Zero, No Limit, became my mantra. My love, she speaks like silence, without ideals or violence. She knows there's no success like failure, and failure is no success at all. The first line, my love, she speaks like silence, was about my teacher. Sensei seemed to speak like silence. Silence went with him wherever he went. It wasn't a rigid, heavy, reverent kind of silence. It was light and spacious, a brilliant silence, and yet a very ordinary silence. I was romanced by that silence. I sensed something wonderful in it and was drawn to it. I'm still romanced by that silence, but not by the silence of any one person, by the silence that's present in everything, always in everything, always. After 51 years, I'm still awed by the great silence that surrounds and imbues everything. Next phrase, without ideals or violence. One reason practice became so hard for me was that I had an ideal I was clinging to. My ideal was that I should do meditation practice with grace. But I was stumbling through it with no grace at all. Ideals are too often about should and shouldn't. They have nothing to do with the movie that's actually going on. They're wanting to get the better movie, get the North Beach movie and stuff. Just be with this movie kindly, with an open heart. Too often they provoke violent thoughts. We are limited and bullied by our shoulds and should-nots. I didn't need to compare my meditation practice with some ideal. The more rigidly idealistic we are, the more violent we become on the inside. 
Look at all of the religious wars that have been going on for thousands of years. Look at them. We have patriotic wars, but the religious wars have killed more people. They're killing more people right now because of some ideal, some idea that we have, some belief. Gee, and Buddhists are doing it too, you guys. Buddhists are doing it too. So the next one I want to read uh, is um, Suzuki Roshi's Counterculture. And then we'll see if, uh, after I read that one, if there's time to read the last one, or maybe I'll just do a question or two. 800 years after Dogen, Suzuki Roshi breathed new life into Buddha's original counterculture. Buddha developed a counterculture in India, and he figured out how to do it without getting crucified. But his counterculture was counter to the Brahmanic system with the, all of the different castes and the untouchables because he welcomed everyone to practice with him, to sit with him. He made it come alive again. Everything he did seemed to arise from the ground of his being, the same ground as Buddha in India, Bodhidharma in Hanshan in China, and Dogen in Japan. Suzuki felt that Buddhism in Japan had taken on a body of fear. He came to America seeking an enclave of fresh ground to cultivate. He discovered a wellspring, but it was any, unlike anything he could have imagined. On November 11, 1967, to rise, raise money to buy Tassajara, we organized a Zenefit held in the Avalon Ballroom in San Francisco. I don't know if any of you are old enough to even <laughs> know what I'm talking about. <laughs> but I, the first reading I did, uh, I, I talked about this, and uh, somebody sent me a poster of the Zenefit online. <laughs> so you can get it online. <laughs> the concert featured performances by the Grateful Dead, Quicksilver Messenger Service, Big Brother and the Holy Company, and Janis Joplin, artists who have since become legendary. I didn't usually go to the Haight-Ashbury district because it wasn't my scene, but I went to the Zenefit. The auditorium was full. Light effects emanated from strobe lights and lasers mounted throughout the theater. Pungent odors filled the air. <laughs> People were dressed or undressed in an amazing variety of regalia. And the huge sounds of 60s rock boomed from the stage. Katagiri, my second teacher, had been in the United States for only two years at the time from Japan. He was reserved, quiet, and a very gentle presence. I remember seeing him standing anxiously in the shadows, half-hidden, and looking quite out of sorts and unsettled in that crazy environment. He looked as if he wanted to run away. I'm sure he did. Suzuki, my teacher, had been in San Francisco for nine years already, so he had kind of gotten used to us. Plus, he had been doing resiliency practice for 30 more years than Katagiri. Sitting on your cushion every day, doing retreats, that's resiliency practice. And you guys may not feel that you're becoming resilient by doing it, but you are, you will, you are, just by sticking with it, without judging, without comparing, just by coming back to it. He sat in the front row of the theater with lights flashing on him from all directions. What a memorable sight. Surrounded by utter chaos, 
He was completely relaxed and seemed totally in his element. He was looking around, smiling, taking it all in. I think he was grooving on the whole thing. (laughs) Finally, the last performer, the amazing blues singer Janis Joplin, took the stage. She gave it her all. Talk about shedding the fear body. In front of a thousand people, she bared her heart and soul in a classic Janis performance. Two guys I worked with who were druggies in the post office in San Francisco said they were going to come to the Zenefit. Well, they didn't have any interest in meditation, but just because they were so in love with, with Janus. <laughs> then, then it was time for Suzuki to say something to the crowd. The auditorium grew silent as he crossed to the microphone. When he spoke, his voice was calm and warm. At first, I think your way very different from ours. Now I see not so different, not so different, the crowd roared. <laughs> Suzuki was touched by Janice's ability to shed her fear body and give her whole heart to others. People responded to her in a visceral way. Janice imbibed the music. It seemed to come from the ground of her being. But she didn't have a practice that cultivated resiliency, as you do, as we do. She could bear her soul on stage in front of people, but privately her life was tragic. Less than three years after the Zenefit, she was dead. Now, Suzuki's resilience is obvious in the fact that he, he somehow got along in this counterculture. He thought he was coming to a British culture. He had a British teacher, for any of you who've read his book, had a British teacher in Japan, and he thought, wow, she's interested in meditation. She, they had tea every day at 3 o'clock punctually, She was moderate, she was modest, she was disciplined. He thought, I want to come to that place. And where did he come to? San Francisco, (laughs) beginning of the 1960s. We were immoderate. (laughs) We were undisciplined, we were immodest, we were unregulated. (laughs) But somehow we met each other. We met each other. We had an aspiration to tap into the stillness he talked about, and he saw that we were hungry. So we met each other. We met each other. And uh, because of that, not, not entirely because of that, but with Zen, entirely because of that, there are Zen centers all, all over the country. Now, the Vipassana movement, I think, was affected by that too. People like Jack Cornfield talked to me about how Suzuki was a real teacher for them. So we can do it. We're here together, all of us doing this in Redwood City. There was nobody. 50 years ago who did this in Redwood City. That's why I had to go to Chinatown. <laughs> so, uh, looks like I've got three minutes for a question. <laughs> Does anybody have a three-minute question? <laughs> anybody have a question or a comment? Anybody? Anything? Yes? And I'm wondering if I buy the book, am I going to get both? <laughs> well, she wrote the book, ask her. Wanda, is she going to get both? The stories are just to eliminate The stories are what? The stories are all about. Yeah. Yeah. You can look at the book and decide. <laughs> you can open it to see. <laughs> uh, well, thank you very much. Oh, one more, okay. 
Oh, it's called. It's still around. You can still get it. It's called by W. T. Stace, S. T. A. C. E. And it's called the Teachings of the Mystics. I don't know if the book is a big deal anymore. There wasn't much like, you know. Now we have hundreds of books, and I found this little book. Yeah, Wanda's looked at it. Is it? Is it? Has it stood the test of time? Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. It's been fun to be here. I'll be uh, um, meeting one-to-one with you, just standing outside if you'd like, and then if you'd like to uh, buy a book, I'll sign books, but whatever. And keep it up, you guys. Keep it up. It's your treasure. It's your treasure, this stillness. Each of yours. It doesn't belong to anybody. So keep it up. Thank you. <laughs>